This morning is November 20th, 2022, and I kind of think we ought to just get started. Does that sound okay with you guys? Y'all doing all right? (laughs) And all I need is for a computer to work. That's been going around. You know, I've been in Chicago, and that was a tremendous blessing. On the way back, I had the opportunity to hear the last several messages, and I wanted to share some of my observations about what I think the Lord is doing for us in this season of life. Can you appreciate that there are different seasons of life? If you can't appreciate that, then drive from Texas, where it's 112, to Chicago, where it is 12, and you'll recognize there are different seasons. The message, Operation Sledgehammer. Did you all enjoy that? In my view, they spoke about the principle of entrapment. Coming from a family of outlaws, I understood what entrapment was early in life. This is the concept of Israel being on the peninsula. The, The devil in the deep blue sea are what they're facing. Behind them are Pharaoh's armies. They seem trapped, don't they? Exodus 14, 4 says, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. This principle of a saint looking trapped, feeling defeated, being at the end of his strength, at the end of his ability but ultimately relying upon the resurrecting power of our God, well, it's not a trap for you. It is entrapment for your enemy. This is how God gains glory. I love the message. I appreciate the warrior spirit in this church. It has done a lot to carry us forward. 1 Corinthians 2.8 makes a profound statement. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. The enemy has still not caught on to God's plan. That when you're at the end of your strength, when you feel defeated, when you are cornered at every side, he pounces on the opportunity because the enemy believes that is his victory and your defeat. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is where your strength ends and you find the resurrecting strength of God begin. This is true in the ministry of Christ. This is true in the ministry of every Christian. There is no other way to minister. There are a lot of pretty pulpits, a lot of sweet, dainty little pastors that try to lead out of their perfection. You cannot. I appreciate your suit and tie. I do think it's a little queer, but... I appreciate that you want to dress it up. The truth is, brokenness is the only way that this works. You don't have it together. He does have it together. In your earthen vessel, he puts all surpassing power. And the earthen vessel doesn't need to be cleaned up. It doesn't need to be dressed up. It doesn't need to have stained glass on it. It needs to be seen for what it is. An earthen vessel that God's power works through. In that message, they hit on 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 8. And I have to say, this has been kind of the theme of the last month for me personally. 
for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us. Somebody acknowledge the word make us. In fact, just say it, make us. This doesn't come easy. This doesn't come naturally. It is not something in your human nature you want to do. So God puts us in situations that make us rely not on ourselves. You have to be made to not rely on yourself. Given the opportunity, given the choice, given the inclination, you will always rely on yourself. So he knows how to form you. He knows how to make you wrestle with him. He knows how to put you in a situation that makes you rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In verse 10, he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. Well, good thing that's over. And he will deliver us. Well, good thing we're going to get past this at some point. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us in the future. And it all relies upon his power to resurrect you in your broken state. So I appreciate that in Christianity, you know, life is wonderful. Business is terrific. People are awesome. It's all smiles, shirts, and ties. Except it's not true. It's never been true. And the world recognizes the hypocrisy for what it is. The truth is that we are broken men pushed to the very edge of our existence and he picks us up again and again and again. And that is what we are relying on. It's like a sledgehammer that comes in and gives you victory when you were at the end of your strength. We moved from there. By the way, these positions, I hate weakness. Am I the only one in here that hates weakness? I don't like to admit when I'm sick. I don't like that at 47 years old, there are things that I can't do that I used to. I don't like it. This position is not our failure because it's not final. For us, these are temporary stations. They're not our permanent status. They are the building blocks of a supernatural testimony that says God turns darkness into light for you. He turns weakness into strength for you. That you are in a spiritual winter for seasons, but spiritual spring is on its way. The resurrecting cycle of God is at work in you, and it was not just at salvation or on your Easter fundraising service. It is a daily event in the life of a Christian. We moved on to a message called Immeasurably More. Honestly, it's a great message. I think they titled it wrong. For years, I will remember it as the I can't cancer message. Yeah, when I said immeasurably more, you're like, what was that about? When I say I can't cancer, you know exactly what it's about. Just give you a synopsis. What I took from it. Don't you make the mistake of believing the lie that says because you didn't get it right, you didn't prevail, or you didn't perform the righteous deed, that it means that you can't do it didn't 
ain't the same as can't. It's true that I didn't. But watch me be transformed because I can in the name of Jesus. Didn't acknowledges the realism there. I can in the name of Jesus is the resurrection there. Romans 7.21 acknowledges something that is worth considering. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, anybody want to do right? Evil lies close at hand. That's as true for you, Sharash, as it is you, Damien, as it is you, Spencer, as it is me. You can pretend that it's not true. You can not invite people over to your house during the hours where it would be on display. You can make sure that there's not a stain visible anywhere on your suit. But the truth is there's not a human being in here that when you want to do right, evil is not close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's true too. But I see in my members another law. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, we are rescued from the I can't cancer by one person. Jesus the Christ, who is the resurrection and the life. He is the answer to the evil that lies close at hand. He is the answer to your human inability. And he requires you to rely on him daily. When we come to situations where we feel trapped or we feel condemned because we didn't do it right. We didn't have what it takes in the moment. We rely on him who raises us from the dead again and again and again. The entire Lazarus story is not about a resurrection at the end of time, but a resurrection in real time, right now. I want you to know that I'm often brash. I'm often aggressive. I am often cynical, if not skeptical. Those are things that are on my navel card. They've been true for a long time. But it's not the only thing that's true. I'm also full of the Holy Ghost. I am also passionate about the faith. I also will turn that aggression on the enemy and choke him out. Something can be true about you without it being the only thing that's true about you. Our lifetime gives us the opportunity to decide what our defining characteristic will be. A reliance on the flesh which is cursed or a reliance on the spirit of God which will raise you up at the last day. You know, I got back in town just in time to hear the message. Full access. This was preached by Carlos, Spencer, and Justin Linton. It's amazing. The only one we needed an interpreter for was Justin Linton. Their message was an excellent encouragement to renew our connection to the Father, to his heart, to his purposes, through the power of a gift that he gave us called prayer. Man, I needed that word. I'm I'm your pastor. I'm going to tell you, you needed that word. It was during the closing of their message that I got that familiar butterfly feeling 
And I knew what I had to do. It's where this message is born from today. I'd like to start it with a song. Amen. We get the idea, and we so butchered that that uh, I'm going to read you the lyrics. You know when you clip one minute out of a four-minute song? That was not the minute I clipped. Listen to these words. Here comes the rain again, falling on my head like a memory, falling on my head like a new emotion. I want to walk in the open wind. I want to talk like lovers do. I want to dive into your ocean. Is it raining with you? What I hear in this is a refreshing of your salvation experience, a renewal of your initial memory. What I hear in it, in the words like a new emotion, is the retransforming of your heart so that it's new all again. When she says, I want to walk in the open wind, I hear a renewal of the leading of the Spirit. When she says, I want to talk like lovers do, I hear the reconnecting of your prayer life like it was in the beginning. When she says, I want to dive into your ocean, I hear an all-in attitude for what God is doing, like Peter jumping out of the boat. But the question, is it raining with you? That's the question of a lifetime. Our message today is called, Here Comes the Rain Again. For our ACT students, I'll tell you this will be a circular message. I'll attempt to cover more than I should, so you can mark that down as something not to do. The message may not be short, and I have no plans for it to be as eloquent as some are. However, I think you will all agree that it is born of God. And it is what the spirit of Adonai wants us to hear as a church body this morning. So I'm not only going to ask for your full attention, I'm going to demand it. Whatever else is on your mind today, this time's dedicated to the reprioritization of your life by God himself. We're going to forget about everything else and we're going to focus as if our eternal soul depends on what happens next. 
If you don't like that, you shouldn't have endangered yourself by walking in the building. And if you have the courage to get up and walk out while I'm speaking, I will have the courage to ask you why. So think about that. We're going to begin in the book of Yaakov today, otherwise known as James, because a particular king of England was an arrogant man. This is thought to be the most Jewish of all books in the Newer Testament. It's addressed in the opening lines to the 12 tribes. That's one of the reasons that early Christians were not crazy about it. In the book of James, the 12 tribes are waiting for national transformation. They're fighting for personal transformation. They're oppressed. They're persecuted. And in many ways, they're wearied spiritually, if not physically. The book begins with an exhortation on the testing of your faith. And there is a warning in the 8th verse. The 8th verse goes like this. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. That word double-minded is dipsukos. It literally means two spirits. It refers to the vacillation between two opinions, two purposes, or two hearts. This was my first clue to another text that James has got on his mind. Because there is a particular time in Israel's history where they are vacillating between two opinions, and a very particular prophet said so. James is preaching and writing in the hope of national transformation for Israel, even as he is fighting for the personal transformation of every believer. Guys, this can only be done with a singleness of heart regarding both the willingness of God and the ability of God to transform and resurrect every one of you. And resurrect you regardless of your circumstances or how you got in them. Some of you are victims and all that has happened in your life, you have been the victim of. And that's not true, but it is how you feel. Others of you recognize that you are the cause of your own problems. And what's, what's the most amazing thing is God is the answer to both in the same way. Whether you are the victim of violence spiritually done against you or you are the cause of what has happened, he is still willing and he is still able to help you. And that belief is cornerstone to everything else. So the very first pericope or, or sectional heading in James is about the testing of your faith. And if you flip in your Bible to James 5, 7, you'll see that the last subject matter that James discusses is patience or perseverance in suffering as well as the power of prayer. So, look, we have a beginning and ending in James. The book begins talking about the testing of your faith, and the book closes with patience during that testing and the power of prayer. That gives you the overall scope or context of the book of James. Patient endurance and suffering and transforming power of prayer. Now, since you're in James 5, let's read verse 7 together. Are you all awake this morning? Yeah. Am I doing enough to keep your attention? Yeah. You little resorts in the back, you paying attention? Yes. Hey, louder. There we go. He's growing up. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's so many ways to refer to the coming of the Lord here. And I have no doubt that the eschatalon is in view, uh, at least majoritively. The actual appearing bodily of Jesus Christ to initiate a resurrection and usher us into a millennium. Except a farmer doesn't just have one season. A farmer goes through a season and he sees the same cycle repeat again and again and again. And while there is a second return to the earth by Jesus Christ bodily... There is also a season in our life where we have been rained on and planted by him. And then we go through difficulty, drought, we feel separation, and we feel him coming again. So when we say the coming of the Lord is at hand, you need not think only about the end of time any more than Mary, Martha, and Lazarus should think about the resurrection at the end of time. Because it was also very much that week there in their situation. Early rains were winter rains. We think of winter as the end of our year. But originally winter was the beginning of the Israeli year. So the rains that fall in winter are what the Bible calls early rains. Late rains were in the spring. Now you meditate on that for a minute. The early rains were in the winter season of your life. The latter rains brought you into spring and resurrection in your life. Winter and drought were between the planting and the harvesting. This is a growing cycle in Israel and the life of every believer. After planting and the initial watering, every seed went through wintry death and drought until the latter rains came and it brought forth the harvest that the farmer always intended. I'd like to show you that. I got slide happy today. Every agricultural cycle, which is not really what I'm talking about, I'm talking about you. Where are you at, Jackie? Are you in here? Jackie, I remember when you were planted by God. I saw the early rains falling on your life. That new emotion, that, that rain from heaven that caused you new birth in Christ. But since that time, you've been through death. You've been through drought. All of those disappointing moments when evil was close at hand and the good you wanted to do, you were not able to do. This causes you to have to establish your heart. It causes you to have to go, yes, there are two things working in me, but I am setting my stakes on this one. This also develops in you patience. How many of you know that you don't gain the victory all at once, but you can gain the attitude of victory in a second? And you're waiting for the latter rains of transformation, the ones that bring resurrection power, and you begin to see new things popping into your life that are beyond your ability. It's what we would call precious fruit. 
You walk away from every season like this in confident reliance on resurrection power instead of your own strength. Every elder farmer understood this cycle. He might look at a young farmer and say, son, don't think it's strange that you're going through this cycle. You're going to get through this cycle. As surely as winter came, winter will end. Stand fast. Hold in there. Cry out to the Lord of the harvest. And that way a young farmer should be greatly comforted. Because there is an older man who knows the route that he's already been down and can tell him what to expect in the many seasons of his life. James understood this. James admonished believers to take note of this very thing. He even tells you where he learned it from. I mean, I love that when authors include their source material. It gives you the chance to go see where they learned it. There are a few popular preachers on TV that should not be popular. They're liars, they're charlatans, and they never tell you where they got their revelation from because it's not really revelation. James is not like that. Look at chapter 5 and verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, since James opened his book talking about men who waver between two opinions, and as he's closing his book, he's telling you, hey, you can take the prophets as an example of what I've been saying. And in James 5.17, he names the prophet Elijah. Do you think it's reasonable that James could be basing his work off of the life and ministry of Elijah who confronts a nation that needs transformation but is wavering between two opinions and who finishes in a certain way that James finds encouraging for us? This is going to be a circular message. And we will come back to James. But right now, we're going to go to James' source material. You'll pick up with me in 1 Kings. You can find chapter 17, land on the first verse, and I want to set the context for you. The context, yes, sir. The context is we're somewhere right around 850 B.C. You young people out there, I want you to know I was not actually alive at that time. But it's likely that President Biden was. I'd ask him, but he doesn't know. This is the time of poor leadership in the nation of Israel. It's a divided... That's what got me on the political subject. It's a time of a divided kingdom. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah in the south. Ahab is king of Samaria in the north. Ahab is the seventh king of the northern faction and is like a manifestation of the worst of the worst. Ahab married a woman named Jezebel and y'all have heard her name all your life. Jezebel means unhusbanded. Uh, we're not going down this road because we just had a wedding and it was amazing and we're all riding a high. 
If you're ever tempted to think of your wife as a Jezebel, realize it's your fault. Yeah, I'm going to move on from that. So Jezebel was a Sidonian. And she had such influence over her pansy husband. I mean, this dude wore a skirt to work. Which is not unusual on the West Coast now. But in biblical times when he made them male and female, very unusual. And they introduced worship to Baal MacArth. In 1 Kings 16, which we're not going to read, they actually built temples to Baal MacArth, which is the Phoenician storm god. That makes this story. I just wanted you to have some of the backdrop. Israel's in danger at the point we're picking up in this story of losing all reverence for Adonai. They are literally limping between two opinions. And the two opinions are, is Adonai God or is Yahweh God we recognize they're both real, but who is the most high God? They need national transformation. How funny it is that James is drawing from this story in speaking to believers who would never think that they're struggling between those two opinions. But when you're wondering whether to rely on the Lord or to take matters into your own hands, you're in the same position as Israel, I promise. 1 Kings 17 is the entrance of a hero. And I, I mean, I love it. When Elijah comes on the scene, it's incredible. And remember, James is referring to Elijah in all five chapters of his book. He just doesn't name him till the end. That's like a good message where at the end of the message, he brings it to a conclusion. 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tish in Gilead said to, Abra to Ahab, very different than Abram, Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Now, when you hear that, you're all familiar with the idea that there would be no rain. You've heard this story before. But did you catch that there won't even be dew? Man, that's dry. That's, that's, that's drier than the church I grew up in. The dew point in Israel is unique in the world. I don't have time to go through it, but the mountain's relationship to the sea creates a moisture and temperature differential that causes water to form on the rocks when you wake up each morning. Israel's one of the few places in the world where in biblical times they didn't remove the flat rocks from the field because they collected water and the water then spread to the crops even without it raining. They're extremely dependent on the early winter rains and the latter spring rains because the dew sustains daily life, but it will not bring resurrection life. The agricultural cycle in Israel is one of continual death and resurrection. And daily dew was necessary to sustain life. But early and late rains are what brings the resurrection harvest. This hardship that Israel is experiencing. It's intended to cause them to want to restore their connection with Yahweh. The only way to do that is to realize their utter failure and ask for his total enablement. Amen. God is bringing them to their knees. 
to make them rely on his power instead of themselves. During this dry time, the hope is that the people would cry out for rain again. Let's go to 1 Kings 18. Y'all kind of have the context down? After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. That's an interesting requirement. By the way, James 5.17 refers to this event and says it's three years and six months. That's a long time without rain or dew. This word, though, stuck for me. Show yourself to Ahab. This is a word from God to Elijah. Go show yourself to Ahab. You realize this is a life-endangering word? And it's required for rain to come. He doesn't just pray and rain comes. There is a requirement first. You'll never get to the latter rains without facing death in your own life. It'll never happen. The prophetic example again and again and again is as long as you're going, no, we're all good. Now, you'll never get enablement from God. As long as you're that pretty perfect pastor or Christian or whatever it is you call yourself that's got it all together all of the time and you never let people see you sweat, you'll never actually operate in the empowerment of God. You like your own empowerment, your own image too much. And you're the only one that doesn't find that laughable. In chapter 18 in verse 5, it's indicated that the drought resulting from this famine was so bad that the livestock was in danger of perishing because they could not find grass. Okay, It's one thing to be without a little bit of rain. It's another to neither have rain nor dew. When you have run out of grass anywhere in Israel for your livestock, That's pretty bad. By the way, in chapter 18, verses 8 through 9, for your notes, it displays a portrait of Ahab. Ahab has a tendency to kill men for two reasons. One is, if they say something to him that he finds out is not true, he kills them for that. Another is, if they should happen to say something that he or his wife doesn't like. That makes it difficult to speak to Ahab, don't you think? Nevertheless, Elijah is committed by God to go show himself to Ahab before it will rain again. Do you want the rain again? Then you have to face some very difficult things. The death of your image, the death of your self-will, the death of your self-governance. There are so many things that you will have to face. But God is willing To make it rain again. You guys know how this story goes. Ahab sees Elijah and he calls him the troubler of Israel. Of course, Elijah is also the catalyst for national transformation. See, even Elijah was not only one thing. (laughs) You troubler of Israel. Well, that's true. I did just cause a famine. (laughs) 
but he's also the bringer of rain. Very rarely can we sum somebody up as a singular thing or another. There is always something that is fading in their lives and something that's growing in their lives, and the question is, which way are they going? Elijah calls to the people in 1 Kings 18, the story I'm not reading today. And he sounds like Moses, who was 600 years before him. Do you remember in Exodus 32, Moses stands in front of the camp, and he says, all who are for the Lord, come to me. And the Levites rallied to him, and they strapped swords on their side, and then they went through the camp, and they put to death the idolaters among them. That's exactly what Elijah does here. You think it's a unique event. He's just walking in the footsteps of Moses. He literally stands up and says, all who are for the Lord, come to me. And then they put to death 850 prophets of Baal. They got rid of the idolaters among them. This is Elijah leading the people in a war against idolatry that's ruining the nation. Then Elijah did something else in this chapter. Not then, it's actually before. But I want you to catch it. Did you feel the drought as I was talking to you about it? When Elijah decided to make a sacrifice to his God, in the middle of a drought, he poured water on it. Um, you've heard that taught, that he poured water on it so that it was uh, saturated, so that when God lit it from heaven with fire, that uh, it was clear that it was a miracle. But do you know what else it is? To pour out precious water in the middle of a drought on an offering is to illustrate that the man of God is never at a disadvantage. His life doesn't depend upon the water. His life doesn't depend upon anything other than the Spirit of God. But that's not the only thing that it illustrates. It also illustrates no cost is too high. You know, there, there were some cows looking in the distance going... Maybe some cowish people. <laughs> there wasn't dew. There wasn't rain. What is this crazy prophet pouring out gallons of water? Not once, but twice and three times. Why? Because he can't be put in a situation where he's disadvantaged and the cost is never too high when you believe that Adonai will help you. Oh, let me just say it. You only pour out water when you can confidently say, here comes the rain again. You think that the biggest statement of faith is him building the altar and believing God will light it on fire in the same way that he did in Leviticus 9 at the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. No, it was a bigger step of faith to start by pouring out the most precious resource in the entire land. You do something like that. You don't hold back. You give it all. When you believe, here comes the rain again. Well, we probably are to pick up in our main text. Let's get to 1 Kings 18, and I'm going to be in verse 41. All of that was so that you would understand. And remember, we still have to go back to James. I told you, if you don't like it, you can leave, and I will call your name as you're leaving. I mean, it's only fair, right? Verse 41, and Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, 
For there is the sound of rushing rain. There are two very important truths about this singular verse. And, and I just I want to start with them on a slide for you. The first one, you should reflect on Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. How did Elijah know that there was the sound of rushing rain? Because he was in the word of God. So, well, Eric, the text does not say it was in the word of God. Of course it does. Everything that he did mimicked Moses. Everything that he did mimicked Leviticus 9. Everything that he did was based totally out of the Tanakh. There's not an original thing in it. You cannot hear the sound of what God is doing without spending time in his word. Say, well, I had a dream. Good for you in your dream. I'm sick of hearing about charismatic dreams. You feel very spiritual for having your dreams. If your dream caused you to wake up and leave the country, that's how serious you were about the dream? Good. Then it's like Joseph's dream. If your dream causes you to go into the Oval Office, stand before the king of the world, and give him the interpretation, good. That's like the other Joseph's was and like Daniel's was. If your dream is like, well, I, I had this dream and I'm not sure what it means, shut up, you're fishing. Just stop it, okay? Get in your Bible. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from where? The Word of God. You're too charismatic for your own good. Get into the Word and God will speak to you from the Word. He will grow your faith from the Word. Elijah knows there is the sound of rushing rain because Elijah is a man acquainted with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. In that order. They are the same. But when you get the order wrong, you can misunderstand what the Spirit of God is. Let's be clear about something. Elijah has perceived or heard something not observable to the natural senses. This occurred by faith, and that faith came from the word of God. He received the word in 1 Kings 18.1. He then went forward to present himself to Ahab, and now he can hear the sound of rushing rain. Nobody else hears the sound of rushing rain. He's the only one that hears it. Yeah. Hebrews 11. Y'all stay in 1 Kings 18. We'll put it on a screen for you or I'll just read it to you and I won't lie. Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Do you think they hoped for rain? Do you think they wanted rain? Do you think they needed rain? But Elijah is the only one that can hear it. Because he's been in the word and faith has come through hearing the word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. When Elijah hears the rain, you can look up, but there is nothing there. Elijah can perceive what God is going to do before his eyeballs can see it. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. That's a really important concept we're coming back to. 
Everything around us was spoken into existence out of nothing. The first thing that you have to get down in your soul is faith comes by hearing. And hearing only comes through the word of God. If you want to hear the sound of rushing rain, if you want revival in your spiritual life, you will only begin to hear the sound of rushing rain by engaging with the word. Let's look at the second thing from that first verse. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. Say, I believed. I believed. <laughs> we believe and so we speak. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. I want you to know that Elijah did not just hear the sound of rushing rain. He heard it and he believed it. And because he believed it, he went forward to speak to Ahab. The verse says, and said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink. See, this is like a prophetic declaration to a king who can kill you if you're wrong. He can kill you if he doesn't like what you're saying. This is a prophetic declaration in advance of the outcome. He is effectively staking his life on the drought has ended. Has the drought ended though? No. <laughs> no, no. Elijah has heard and perceived something that no one else has. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. With faith, everything is possible for him who believes. In these life and death trials, we're going to have to put our faith into action by both hearing in the word and believing what we heard, then speaking what we believe. Now, I'd like to show you that. I thought it was good too, Pastor Aragina. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing comes from the word. Faith is the assurance of the things you hope for based on what you saw in the word. And when we believe we have faith, we also speak about what we heard and saw in the word. You should take that in for a minute. It'll change your landscape. It'll change your marriage. It will change your home. It will change the way that you interact with the world around you. It will turn your drought into a season of resurrection. See, a man's words, they flow from the storehouse of his heart. The words that we speak must reflect a singleness of heart that comes from hearing God's word to you. Becoming sure of what you do not yet see, but have begun to perceive by faith. Then you believe, and you believe enough to declare it. Enough to be steadfast in it until it happens. Nobody in the One Association loves Eric Stevens because I'm pretty. Nobody in the One Association relies on Eric Stevens because I'm a diplomat. You've come to expect as an elder in the faith that if I say I heard it in the word, I will stand on it until it happens. And that's comforting. That's why character is how you lead people. But you can't make up the word. You have to actually hear it. 
This means that you have to establish your heart on what you hear and learn to boldly declare it and refrain from things that you didn't hear. This is why those that glean their messages from YouTube and steal messages from other pastors, not inspired by them, steal them. They're powerless. It doesn't matter how pretty they are or how large the crowds are. They are not preaching something they heard. They are vomiting something they swallowed. Hey, let's get to verse 42 because we're going to have fun. We're 48 minutes in. I, I don't know how long we'll go, but like I said, I laid out the parameters. Verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. Ahab believed the word. Have you ever noticed that people believe a word they like? The drought's ended? Well, yeah! <laughs> so Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the, mount, uh, to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. I had trouble visualizing this, and um, I think that this is wrong, <laughs> but I... I thought about having Cody demonstrate it, and I decided not to. <laughs> he didn't put his face between his knees and sit down. He, put his face, he, he bowed himself to the earth and then put his head between his knees, according to the text. When you think about that, you would have to roll this man forward then. Wow. While you're staring at that, I would like to... Speak with you about it. It's so often for the man of faith seems like the world is at play. Well, you've had to set your face like Flint to pray. They benefit from the things that you do. But they don't labor with you to cause them to come about. Because our hearts have been established on what we heard in the word of God, we boldly proclaim it. While you're looking at his positioning, to the natural man, this looks like a very defeated soul. Doesn't it? I mean, like this does not look like a man ready to go 10 rounds with Apollo Creed, right? This is not defeat. This is victory. Elijah has descended to a higher place. He has lowered himself in a way that is prostrate before the Lord, submitted before the Lord... That says, I have just boldly declared what I heard from you, and I have no means of making it come about, but you do. That is descending to a higher place. Elijah is at the end of his ability, but he's at the beginning of God's demonstrated ability. Elijah has heard the word of the Lord. He's perceived and become convinced of a reality that no one else can see yet, including him. Elijah has proclaimed in bold prophetic speech to the head of a nation. This is the death of Elijah's ability. That's all he could do. Now all he can wait for is the beginning of the resurrecting rain. Here comes the rain again. We don't like to be in this position. We feel trapped in this position. You are not trapped. The enemy is trapped in this position. You're in a place that God can actually use. Verse 43. And he said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. 
And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. So you've heard this preached on many times. And I want to I wanna engage with it with you as I was engaging with it, okay? Not pretty preaching, just real engagement. Why did Elijah not go himself? I mean, he's the one that heard. He's the one that proclaimed. Why does Elijah not go himself? The man who has obtained a thing by faith, a thing that could not be seen with the natural eyes, must not test his faith by submitting to it his natural eyes. You must not dig up what you have sown in faith and faith alone. See, every time Elijah gets up from praying and breaks his posture and breaks this to go see if what God said is true, that would be destructive to the very word that he heard. When God speaks to you, Christian, sometimes you just need to stand on it so that you don't end up renegotiating it. That is a good word. Okay, pastor, if that's true, if, like if that's true, why then did Elijah send his brother to look? Because this brother would become a lifetime witness to what his eyes beheld and what he felt felt and touched through the faith of another man in the transforming power of God. Elijah couldn't go look. That would be destructive to his faith. The young man had to go look. That's how his faith was built. Consider the positioning of these two men because you will likely be both at some point. (laughs) Elijah and his brother. Elijah has to hold fast to what Adonai told him without re-evaluating based on what he sees. But his brother, he had to go look with eager expectation for the transformation that your brother has proclaimed until it happens. Let me put this in real time for you. Perhaps Adam Korah has got a word from God. And he is excited about that word, but you see no part of it happening. But you are Adam's brother. You are to look every day in eager expectation, waiting to celebrate and proclaim that word until it happens for him. But he cannot wake up every day and go, Lord, is it happening? He has to stand on what God has said. This is how we fight for our brothers. These two different roles of brothers fighting for one another. Elijah is fighting for national transformation that will benefit his brother. He cannot reevaluate, renegotiate, or retreat from his position in faith, regardless of the circumstances or conditions. That is Elijah's role in the battle. He's the one that heard. The servant brother has a different role. He's heard no sound, he's received no personal revelation. But he does love and have a relationship with Elijah. And he continually and faithfully looks for the transformation that Elijah's faith declared. That's his role in the battle. I suspect that you're one brother or the other. And those positions switch many times in your life. Can you say it often takes two brothers to win a battle? (laughs) 
I know that every time I was in a physical battle, it seemed like there were more brothers than I wanted there to be on the other side. Praise God for the brotherhood of believers. If one falls and no one's there to pick him up, pity that man. But when one falls and has his brother beside him to pick him up. Can I talk to you about the brutally honest report of the servant? Is that all right? The phrase is, there is nothing. <laughs> there is nothing. Not I kind of sort of see a little bit, or I, I don't know, the hue of the sky could be changing, or I, I kind of feel something. No, no, there's nothing. Hebrews 11, we've just read. Faith is always about the conviction of things that are not seen. So would you expect there to be nothing? Yes. The whole universe is made, according to Hebrews 11.3, out of things that are not visible. So would you expect there to be nothing? Yes. Romans 4.17 says it in a very interesting way. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. So is it a surprise that there's nothing? You always hope for your great battle of faith to not really require faith, don't you? I, I faced Ahab. That was like death. And then I proclaimed it. I, I did good. Oh, yeah, you know, you're not nearly done. It's not so easy to be resurrected from the dead. You have to die first. John 1, 3. All things, this is crazy in the ESV. It'll take me a minute to get my enunciation and articulation right. I mean, this is the least poetic passage I've ever seen, but it's powerful. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Thank you, Pastor Massey, for that. The Bible begins with Adonai creating ex nihilo. That is Latin for out of nothing. This is how God creates. This was true of your supernatural conversion. You had nothing of worth, brought nothing to the table. But God spoke his promise into you and made you a new creation and then sent early rains upon you. This is true of repentance. Next time you study Psalm 51 or get with Miss Cassidy, she, she gets it. She taught it to me. Create in me a clean heart is bara in me a clean heart, Lord. Like out of nothing, there's nothing there to work with. You're going to have to put a new one. Real repentance is like that because you die at the altar. You die with Christ. There is nothing. But then you can say, here comes the rain again. Every genuine moment of transformation in our lives is an out-of-nothing moment. And if you brought something to the table, then you're not dead yet. You're still leaning on your own arm. You're still leaning on your own image. You're still leaning on your own way of doing things. This is how we know what was made through Christ versus what was made through us. This is our without him was not anything made that was made moment. Say that twice in a row. 
In other words, if there is nothing and it's confirmed six times, then when there is something, it was done through Christ. My least favorite thing in the world is when somebody says, yeah, but Eric, you've always kind of had, had this preaching kind of thing in you. Even when you were lost, you were a leader, weren't you? <laughs> Steal all of God's glory. Go ahead and you do that. Uh, sometimes people talk like, I don't know, one of Balaam's creatures. No, you know what I had the ability to do? Take people straight to sin. You know what I had the ability to do? Push them closer to hell. You know what I never had the ability to do? Like zero, nada, nothing. Confront people about the reality of the kingdom. That was born in me the day he caused me to be born again. It was not there. It did not exist. He spoke it ex nihilo. Elijah's brother, I, I love his honesty when, when we're getting to this. There's nothing. But what Elijah knew in that moment is there is nothing yet. The value of honesty among brothers is something um, that is an accomplishment of faith as it becomes real. I, I want you to get this. Hey, let's just, I, I picked Suresh earlier. Let me grab uh, Rob. Let's say that Rob is praying for Cody. Cody, Cody is, um, he's infirmed in some way. And Rob believes that he's heard from God, so he slaps his hands on Cody's head, and he's praying, and he's like, hey, brother, do you feel anything? Is, I, I feel like God's doing something. Do you feel anything? And Cody's there, and he's like, well, maybe a little, because he doesn't want Rob to feel bad, because he doesn't want to be damaging to Rob's faith. But the truth is, that is destroying the very purpose of Rob's faith. Hey, brother, are things better at home? Well, uh, we're getting there. Is your closeness with the Lord restored? We're, we're, we're doing good. These cowardly but well-meaning responses steal what the contrast between the nothingness that existed is and what God brings into being through his word and faith. You're not helping people along by being a candied apple Christian, okay? Somebody prays for you and the Spirit knocks you down, praise God. I love that, happens, I'm for it, done it, been received by it. You lay down because somebody pushed you. You need to develop a spine. Let's talk brothers fighting in faith for a minute and the honesty of what's happening here. Elijah. Elijah spoke the word based on hearing alone. Man, that is uh, giant testimonies. Trusted his brother's observation even when they were contrary to his hope. I want you to get that for a minute. Let's, let's just work this out. Me and Chris Rosara, man. We're, we're the Elijah and the servant. I'm like, Chris, Chris, I can't leave this place. I got it by faith. I'm not going. You go look for me. Chris comes back and he's like, there's nothing. Chris, do you, do you stand on a rock, man? Did you, I mean, do you have a good vantage point? You, you, 
It's okay. Go, go again, Chris. Yeah, yeah, Pastor, I'm going. So, so he runs, he comes back, he goes, there is nothing. Chris, you seeing okay, man? You, uh, you, you need to uh, borrow? How long before you, Christian, would say, I better go look myself? Charlie Brown, how long before you would go look yourself? Yeah, maybe 10 minutes, okay? Charlie would be like, you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. <laughs> Elijah trusted his brother. Yeah, y'all all laughed at Charlie because it's true of you. Charlie knows it about himself. You're still finding it out. He trusted his brother even when the truthful observation was the opposite to what he hoped for. He sent the same brother back again seven times. See, if Chris and I did this three times, maybe Charlie would go himself. You know what I'd do? I'd be like, mm, thank you for your effort, Chris. That was Justin Trister. Would you go look? <laughs> Problem's not with me. It's got to be the disciple. I'll find another disciple. Look at the brother-servant for a minute. He had the faith to look for the transformation based on his relationship with Elijah alone. This reminds me so much of Acts 16. Paul had a vision of a Macedonian man. And then Luke and, and Timothy and, and Silas, they're like, we concluded God called us to go too. This servant didn't hear the sound of rushing rain. This servant hasn't seen anything. This servant trusts the brotherhood of believers. He faithfully conveyed his report even when it seemed negative without shading it. There's no candied appledness in him. He doesn't be like, well, you know, I kind of maybe, you know, there was an interesting hue in the sky. I mean, he, he tells the truth. You shouldn't have to expect a Christian to tell the truth. I mean, that shouldn't be in any question. It is. It is 100% of the time. Ask somebody whether the shirt you're wearing looks good. Ask Tom after the service. Tom, do you like my shirt? Watch Tom squirm. Because we want to be nice. And this doesn't feel nice. But... When you are dishonest while you're doing this, then how will you know when the rains actually come? How will you know when God's done something that was outside of you? Your perceptions of Christianity are totally wrong most of the time. This servant continued back up the mountain seven times. Can we say that these brothers are fighting in the faith? Verse 44. And at the seventh time he said, Behold. <laughs> Behold, like Charlton Heston, behold, a little cloud. <laughs> behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. Let's focus on the little cloud for a minute. That's Matthew P. Rowe and Wade Sutherland is on a boat in the Mediterranean vaping, and that's what happened. <laughs> oh, 
Okay, you stay staring at this slide. Sound booth, keep that slide there. I want you to keep this in mind. I'm going to read to you from Haggai 2, 3 through 7, and I'm going to refer to Zechariah 4, 6. I won't lie. I'm going to read it verbatim. You stare at that. I want you to keep that picture in mind. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people, declares the Lord. Strong how? When you're looking at something like that, and we're saying that that is going to stop chariots, how do you be strong? Well, clearly we need bench press, right? No, you need a book press, man. Haggai is encouraging them to be strong in the establishment of their hearts that what Adonai promised he is able to perform, to no longer waver between what you can see with your eye and what God has told you by faith. He goes on to say, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. See, I was there. I was there with you when you came out of Egypt in early rain. Now listen, my spirit remains in your midst. That sounds like latter rain. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Well, you're staring at that picture. This is God's manner of creation. He is an ex nihilo out of nothing kind of God. This makes it painfully evident that what is accomplished was accomplished through Adonai and not the strength of any man. He requires you to believe and to speak when it cannot be seen, measured, or determined. You know that Zechariah 4, 6 through 10 says, Not by might, nor by power, nor uh, by your strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Goes on to talk about Zerubbabel with a plumb line in his hand and says, who, who is despising the day of small beginning? We're not permitted to see the mounting evidence and then as a fair weather fan proclaim victory. Faith sees what is still undiscernible to the eye. Faith hears the sound of rushing rain and it says, here comes the rain again. Faith sees a little cloud and makes a bold declaration, here comes the rain again. We need to wrestle for a minute. What does it look like to despise small beginnings? To treat them as nothing? Negativity? Skepticism towards supernatural seeds of transformation? Well, yeah, you, you did a little better today. We'll see if it lasts. Oh, that pastor's anointed, he does great, but... Do you know all the other things that he does? Okay. Faithlessness towards what Adonai can do in another person. What does it mean to despise a small beginning? It says, because it's presently nothing, it will never be anything. 
Yeah, grasp that for a minute. Think about your own words this week. Think about them to your spouse. Think about them to your children. Think about them relating to your other brothers in this ministry. Are you measuring them by what they are today or what God says they will become? See, a lost man says, look, dude, I'm just being a realist. I want to be a resurrectionist. I am a resurrectionist. What does it look like to show God honoring faith in the small beginnings of transformation like that cloud? Bold prophetic speech about what God is in the process of doing. You see a cloud, I see heavy rain. Because that's what God said is coming. You see the cloud is insignificant. I see it is entirely significant because there was nothing and then there was a cloud. Something's happening. God is doing it. Declaring God's will in spite of what you can see. Declaring what will be in advance of its arrival. Remember this cycle. There is a planting in the life of a person. And it's accompanied by spiritual rains. Early rains. That is in the winter. You go through death and drought. This is allowing you to establish your heart on what God has done. Patience, believing he will continue to do it again and again and again on the journey. Then you receive latter rains for transformation. This acquaints you with an ongoing resurrection power. It begins to produce precious fruit. It leaves you confident and relying on daily resurrection. Let's read verse 44 again. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. Did you notice uh, that it's Elijah's brother servant that is going to make the proclamation? The first time Elijah did it, now it's the servant. This man's hand rising from the sea. It's like Israel beginning to no longer drown in their circumstance. It's like a hand reaching up out of the sea towards heaven. They're coming out of it. They're coming out of it. Now, it didn't look that way to you when you're looking. At it. That's because you didn't hear the word. <laughs> it looked that way to those that believed the word. A singular word rising from the sea of God's revelation may be all you need to save you. I want to tell you, when we give 45 words to a man, I appreciate that we do it. I mean, it's fun. It's so... The times in my life that I've truly been resurrected were by a singular small word. <laughs> it's almost as if God's not interested in the abundance of our speech. Do you understand how big of a statement of faith that this brother servant is making when he says to Elijah? I don't have time to teach you about it, but remember he hasn't heard the rushing rain. He hasn't seen storm clouds. He saw a little cloud, like Pastor Matt vaping on a boat. If he turns out to be wrong, Ahab's going to kill him. He's bet his life on a seed of transformation. You always have to bet your life on a seed of transformation. You bet your marriage on it. You bet your children on it. You have to believe, here comes the rain again. You have to do that when you don't see clouds in the sky. 
The site that all of this is happening is the Jezreel Valley. On another night, we might a day, it'll soon be night. We might read Judges 5, 4 through 5, or Judges 5, 19 through 21, because those chapters make it very clear that this is where heaven fought against Sisera in the days of Deborah and Barak. This is where heaven fought by sending heavy rains on Israel and Sisera's chariot got stuck. A battle that couldn't be won was won because heaven fought by bringing the rain. Now Ahab was no great lover of the Lord, but he did know that story. And so when this servant goes to him and says, you're going to have to get out of here or your chariots will get stuck. What do you think's on Ahab's mind? He just watched 850 prophets die. The whole thing's being done based on the sighting of a cloud as tiny as a man's hand. The servant is proclaiming to Ahab that heaven is fighting for Israel and the rains will be so great that if he does not obey the word given to Elijah, then he may be trapped in the valley like Sisera. Friends, you may have to learn to celebrate the tiniest seed of transformation or perhaps you're already stuck in a valley like Sisera. So many spiritual battles pivot on whether or not you can perceive that God has brought, is bringing, and will continue to bring transformation. Not being able to absorb this word for you personally, not just your brothers around you, for you, does leave you stuck in the mud like Sisera. By the way, this is also the same valley that Revelation 16 says the battle of Hormegiddo or Armageddon will take place in. So it's not like this is just a story in the past. It's something we're all still preparing for. I, just as one more point of interest, you can see Jesus' hometown from here. And Jesus could see this valley from Nazareth. The very vantage point Elijah and the servant are standing on, he can see where Jesus would be born. Who despises the day of a small beginning? In this house, we're learning to say, here comes the rain again. I wanted to put on the screen those lyrics for you. Falling on my head like a memory. Do you need to refresh your salvation experience? Falling on my head like a new emotion. Do you need a transformation of your heart? Does it just not feel what it used to feel? I want to walk with you in the open wind. Do you need a renewal of the leading of the Spirit in your life? I want to talk like lovers do. Do you speak to God like your boss or a distant relative that you hope will send you money? Or would you describe your prayer life as a passionate love affair? I want to dive into your ocean. Do you have that all-in attitude that you know God is working in these circumstances and you have confidence in it? Is it raining with you? Man, that's the question of a lifetime. Is it raining with you? Well, the honest report for many of you is there's nothing. But the reason that I'm preaching this message today and the reason that I am preaching it is I can hear the sound of heavy rain in here. You may have to take my word for it like the servant. You may not get a word of your own. 
You may have to go and look six times before you see the smallest sign that I might be right. However, if you have the faith to get back up seven times, I read that God will make even darkness light for you. I'm telling you, here comes the rain again. Do you have enough love for me as a brother, enough love for Adonai who gave you your initial reins, enough faith to believe and say out loud with me, here comes the rain again. If you do, then I promise you that you will see it. You'll see it in your once vibrant marriage. You'll see it in the children that you stood here and dedicated to the Lord, but now we're not so sure about. You'll see it in your own soul that has need of being re-wet from a heavy rainfall from heaven. Pick up with me in verse 45. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he was gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is national transformation. It's the preservation of a nation. Do you see that phrase there, in a little while? And in a little while. Do you all see that phrase? You either see it or you don't. Do you see it? How long was that? Well, it felt like an eternity for the servant. It probably feels like an eternity for you. I say, hey, Ray, hey, Lindsay, in a little while, man, this, this all will happen. (laughs) You're like, I I, I believe you. I'm excited. Yes, Lord. How long's a little while? It feels like an eternity. Faith is agonizing. Anybody that says faith is not agonizing is not actually in the faith. They don't know what we're talking about because they've never experienced it. Faith can only be displayed over time, so a little while feels like forever. But when the rain comes, you realize it was just a short seasonal drought. And here comes the rain again. The changes started in the heavens. They grew black with clouds. Then there were changes began to breach the surface between heaven and earth. And it says, and there was wind. And then after a little while, great rain began to fall in Israel, touching the earth, bringing back to life those eternal seeds that were planted in the soil. I need great rain again. I need great rain again. You. You need great rain again. Establish your heart in the true word that the sounds of rushing rain can now be heard by faith. Establish your speech in the proclamation that personal and corporate revival is coming. There is no man of God in the world and and not in this room. No matter how big of a man of God you think you are, some of you are proud of yourselves that experiences mountaintops alone. 
Every man undergoes the valley of the shadow of death. But you can choose to have faith that comes by hearing the word. You can choose to make faithful declarations in your speech. You can choose to look expectantly until the Lord has brought rain. You can choose to say, here comes the rain again. Now, I don't have time to tell you about Elijah running faster than horses. The Arising Church preached a great message that's in it. Listen to Pastors Hefner and Slaughter preach about that. Instead, let me tell you that this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of our message. I know you were ready for a close. I could feel it. I even thought about giving it to you. But I promised we were going to circle back to James. But you first need to... I see you're already turning. You first need to hear the end of Elijah's story. Elijah has seen the heavens withhold both rain and dew for three and a half years. Somebody said that's impressive. Elijah has seen his prayer answered by fire falling from heaven visibly. Elijah has seen his prayer bring water from the heavens, ending the national drought. All of that was in 40 months. 42 months. That's pretty impressive. And yet, he, the great man of faith, is still in need of personal Transformation. See, he fought for the transformation of a nation, but God brought him to a place where he needed transformation. After all the great faith, Elijah was nursing a bit of disappointment. He had expectations of how all this would play out, and those expectations were wrong, just like yours. Elijah, who outran chariots, was running from a woman... And unable to outrun his own emotions. He was in need of personal transformation. I'd ask you if you can relate to this. But the reason I'm preaching is I already know that answer. Lord, I'm 40 now. Is this all you wanted from my life? Lord, I'm going to stay married. But I'm just going to endure it. Lord, I'm not leaving the church, but I've been here forever and nothing is happening. Disappointment in your circumstances is often thinly veiled faithlessness towards your God. It might even be contempt for your God. Even Elijah had these kind of demonic problems, just like you. Let's look at them and then look at the solution. 1 Kings 19. Then he, verse 3, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, way, way, way south, which belongs to Judah. Do you see this phrase? And left, what's it say? And left. Why did Elijah leave his brother? He wanted to feel the way that he wanted to feel with no one to challenge his sinfully self-indulgent attitude. Why else would he have left him? He put himself in isolation precisely so that he could complain to God that he felt isolated. Tell me that you haven't done this. Angry, unhappy, distant. Why is no one reaching out to me? 
Because you drove them away in order to indulge your carnal attitude. You wanted to sit in your own faithless thoughts. This behavior is common in all of our sinful natures. In fact, if you were crossed arms and said, not me, you're a liar. And I'm calling you a liar to your face. I'll do it this far from your face if it makes you feel better. I got not a thing to lose. But I want to focus on the solution because we're learning to say, here comes the rain again. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Do you guys remember when Jesus was in the garden? He asked his brothers to keep watch with him. And they fell asleep. And so God sent an angel to touch him and strengthen him because while Jesus had brothers, they were asleep. Well, perhaps this angel is another mercy case like that. In this case, Elijah has removed himself from brotherhood. It's not that they're sleeping. He sent his brothers away. His brotherhood didn't fail him. He failed to remain in the brotherhood. So God sent an angel because Adonai is that committed to your spiritual resurrection. In this church, your brothers are not asleep. They're not unaware of your agony. But you're going to need to re-engage in a faith-filled fellowship instead of self-indulgent sorrows. And then your brothers will be to you as an angel feeding you from heaven. In this church, we need to accept two pillars two pillars and they become immovable. I will honor the calling of God on my own life, regardless of the present circumstances or my own unmet expectations. Elijah is dishonoring the reason for which he was born. We cannot do that. I will honor the called of God represented in the brotherhood of believers, regardless of the present circumstances or of my own Unmet expectations. We honor the calling God gave us and we honor those who are called with us. Those need to be immovable pillars. Elijah broke them both to get into this position. The angel tells, tells Elijah three very important words. Let's just look at them. Arise and eat. That's not a big meal, by the way. Word salad. You want to hear a word salad? That's Kamala Harris. This angel's concise. He's to the point. Arise and eat. In other words, get up. Get up on the inside. Get up on the outside. Arise. And. Say and with me. See, getting up is not enough. It has to be joined to something. And is a word that joins. You have to arise but you also have to begin to consume something that will transform your weakness into strength. So I did get up. I got up before. Do something different, man. Eat the word. Get in the word. Quit relying on tribal knowledge. I listened to 47 sermons. Well, the best part of that is there was word in those sermons. But what would have happened if you read 47 chapters? 
When we begin to do this, you will again see faith that comes from hearing and hearing that comes from the Word of God. You'll start to perceive things in advance and you'll be able to say, here comes the rain again. Look at verse 6. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water and he ate and drank and lay down again. I wish I could tell you that this was a one-time act. But like the agricultural season in Israel, this is a cycle. You have to believe here comes the rain again. You have to continually rise. You have to continually eat. You have to continually go through winter seasons to get to spring. These are never one-time acts. Resurrection's on the way. But you may have to get up and eat or go up that mountain many, many times to see the clouds grow dark in the sky. Verse 7. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him. Arise and eat. This journey is too great for you. Wow. The journey was too great for Elijah. Is your journey too great for you? If you didn't say yes, then you're probably not on a journey illustrated by God. You're probably journeying into the blatantly well-known, well-worn, compromised Christian path. Full of your own strength, your own image, your own prestige, your own everything. You even brought your own fake anointing. For the rest of us, the journey is too great for us. Which is why we rely on God who raises the dead. Elijah had to be touched from heaven by an angel twice. Elijah had to be fed of heaven by an angel twice. Did you stop after the early rains in your journey? You're going to need the latter rains to finish. Jacob saw the stairway to heaven in Genesis 28. Then he went through a drought with Laban. And then in Genesis 32, he wrestles with God. And it says that he won. Well, he didn't win against God. He won against his own struggle. And he was transformed. He went from Jacob to Israel. He was called love the whole time. But your transformation is a process. There's a lot of things that I'd like to tell you, and I genuinely now do not have time even for me. The journey took Elijah to Horeb. At Horeb, God again spoke to him, but it wasn't in an earthquake, wasn't in fire, wasn't in whirlwind. It was a thin whisper. He was told to anoint three men, Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. Those three men brought about all the changes that Elijah was hoping to see. See, it's never just about you. By the way, after this experience, Elijah never wavers again. Let's put that eurythmic slide back on the screen. Do you need to refresh your salvation experience? You need a transformation of your heart. Do you need a renewal of the leading of the Spirit, a reconnecting in your prayer life? Do you need a new emotion, man? Can we go back to James? And we are going to close here, however long that takes. James starts with the testing of your faith. It takes you through patience and suffering and the power of prayer. And he uses, specifically, Elijah as the example. You remember this slide. 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here comes the rain again. That's what he's saying. He's saying you have to establish your heart that it will rain again. You have to establish your heart that you can have the rain again. Then he tells us that the prophets are an example. James 5.13 is our last passage as we work from 5.13 through. I'm not apologizing when I say that because I genuinely believe there's going to be a rain in this room today. That's why I'm doing this. It's why I'm taking the time to do it. <clears throat> Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. This has always been one of the most awkward exchanges in James. Many of you call me elder and I'd like to tell you that as an elder, I have a particularly special gift to heal the sick. To be sure, every believer in Christ is anointed to heal the sick. It's an intrinsic part of our gospel proclamation. It is to accompany the preaching of the gospel. However, the context of James has nothing to do with elders having a special anointing to pray for the physically infirmed person. Something much more significant is happening here. Something more serious is being addressed here. And it's why the team of pastors asked me to share this message with you today. Let's look at James 5, 14 and 15 on a slide. I hope there we go. Is anyone among you sick? Do you see the word in yellow? What's the word in yellow? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is, what word is in gray? Sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. It's the same word in English. It is not the same word in Greek. The word first used in James 5.14 is austheneo. The second word is kamno. We're going to look at austheneo first. Astheneo tends to mean weak or sick, so you have a choice, okay? That's every lexicon that I own that would fit on the screen. They're all weak, feeble, sick, ill. So I understand why this is translated as sick. You have to ask yourself a question, does it mean physical infirmity or a more serious kind of sickness, though? So I looked at it in the LXX. We're going to summarize our findings. Here's an example. And he said to him, Lord, please, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Does that mean they all had the flu? They all had COVID? Okay. This word appears 69 times in the LXX. Never once does it imply a disease or a physical infirmity. They're all weariness, weakness, feebleness that results from a morally compromised situation. A great example is after Samson breaks his covenant, he is weak, Astheneo. Now, 
He's probably as strong as any other man, but he was not as strong as he should be. He was Asteneo. He was sick in his faith and weak. Now, the LXX is not the only place where this would be easy. In the Newer Testament, let me give you a couple of examples. Romans 14, 1. As for the one who has got the flu, no. As for the one who is Asteneo in the faith, welcome him. Here it's being used of a brother who does not even have the strength to understand Christian freedoms. <laughs> Yeah, well, and then in Acts 20, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if you believe that Acts 20 is about a physical sickness, then I guess we're giving the flu and that's a blessing. He's talking about strengthening a weak person in the faith. Can y'all see that? The word actually appears 33 times in the Newer Testament in 32 verses. 16 of those verses are obviously about weak or sick faith, have nothing to do with physical illness. Where the issue comes in for translators, and I don't want to dry this message that far up by talking about them, is 16 occurrences are literally about a physical ailment, one that is usually being healed. So that creates controversy, and that's why it's translated the way that it is. Now, the thing is, if you will bear with me for a minute and imagine that we are talking about the kind of weakness in the faith that just means you're in a drought. You're in need of a second rain. Imagine that that's what this means. Let's put this next slide on the screen. Is anyone among you weak in your faith? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Do you think that James 4, 5, 14 and 15 are talking about the same person? Seems to be. And yet we have two different words. Maybe the second word will help us understand what it means. You all following me there? Okay, the second word is camno. Let's walk through camno quickly. Camno, again... Means sick, exhausted, tired, ill, weakened, those kind of things. So at first glance, does not seem to help us. Now, let me show you it in the LXX. The only appearances of Camno in the LXX are these two. I loathe, I Camno, my very life. That sounds like a wearied, weak in the faith person, doesn't it? And then Job 17 too. I entreat being wearied, what shall I do? Doesn't sound like we're talking about a broken leg, does it? Those are the only two in the Older Testament. Do you know how many times Camno appears in the Newer Testament? Two. Let's show you that. The one in Hebrews and the one in James. Here's Camno in the book of Hebrews. Nope. There we go. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow Camno, weary or faint-hearted. Given that we know what camno means, it means a weariness, a spiritually sick person. And James 5, 14 and 15 are talking about the same thing. I think it's reasonable to read this in this way. James 5, there we go. Is anyone among you weak in your faith? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is faint-hearted, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, 
he will be forgiven. Now, we're long on time, but I'm just doing it now. Anybody who's ever read the sixth chapter of John should recognize the phrase, we'll raise him up. In John 6, 39, 640, 644, 654, and on and on and on and on, it's how Jesus refers to the resurrection being displayed in a man's life. I will raise him up. I will raise him up. I will raise him up. So either James 5, 14, and 15 is talking about somebody who's dead and just calling it sick, or it's talking about somebody whose faith is dying. If that's the case, then it seems that elders have a special role. It seems that it is my job to show up here having been uniquely qualified because I have been through more cycles of death and resurrection in my own life than most of you. To be able to look and say, you know what, Nolan, I know that it's hard. But I was there when you were planted in the faith. I saw the early rains come in your life. Son, this drought will end. The eternal seed that is inside of you is going to break forth with life because I can hear the rain again. It seems that an elder has a unique position. We can say, you know what, Stephen? I was there when we laid our hands on you and you were anointed by God like a king. And stand up, arise, eat, because I'm going to anoint you again and remind you of what was put into you through the laying on of our hands. It seems that the elders have a promise that if they will grab hold of an Eric Treister and say, Eric, I remember the zeal. How long's it been since the heavy rain fell on you in Val? You can have it again, Eric. You can have it again, Eric. Don't stop. Stand up. Arise and fight. It seems that that's what James is talking about based on the whole context. I know what our church needs. Our church needs to reacquaint with the day we were commissioned. <laughs> Our church needs to declare, I will not live in spiritual drought anymore. I can have the rain again. Let's finish James 5.16 and then we really are closing. Therefore, by the way, the whole confession of sin thing, sickness is not, is not the result of your personal sin. John 9 clears that up. But if you are spiritually wearied, weak in the faith, sick in that way, you may have sinned while you were in that position. And an elder is supposed to look you in the eye, Brandon, and say, son, that season has come to a close. Arise. Arise and you'll be forgiven. Arise and eat and the rain will fall again. And you look and say, again? How do you know? Because I've been there before. That's how I know. 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Healed, saved, restored. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. As it is working. Elijah was a man 
with a nature like ours, meaning he feels what we feel. He experiences what we experience. He was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently. Literally, that's in praying, he prayed. Have you ever been praying but not really praying? You'll practice that right when you leave here and you go like, hey, somebody bless this food. Yeah. No, no, in praying, he prayed. He was talking like lovers do. He was walking in the open wind. He was crying out to his God, and there was intimacy there. That it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Don't you love how cleaned up that is? Did he just pray again and it happened? Did the fruit pop right out of the ground right away? But the moment that Elijah heard the word and started his feet to go, the moment that he descended to the lower place devoid, really descended to the higher place, devoid of his own arm, this battle's already run. It's just a matter of time. That's what we can do here today. I cannot promise you that anything in your circumstances will change. What I can promise you is that I have heard the sound of heavy rain for this congregation. What I can promise you is I am an elder to this body if no other. And I can remind you of the days we first set out in Mexico. I can remind you of the times when you were first married. I can remind you of the times that you were held up before the Lord. I can remind you of the early rain that I witnessed in your life. And if you can rise in your faith and say, here comes the rain again. Then I believe that that's exactly what he'll do. Let's get on our feet. What do you want? The rain. Miranda, will you put that slide back up, the Eurythmics? While you're staring at this. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. I don't know what in your life has died, but I'm telling you, it has to. Spend your whole life trying to keep your control over your children from dying. Now you need to just let it die. Spend your whole life trying to make sure that you've manipulated, I mean managed your spouse. You just need to let it die. When you feel that sentence of death, it gives us the opportunity to let God make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We have a promise. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us from a peril, and He will again deliver us. You can only say that when you know that the same land that he reigned on, he will reign on again. We're an hour and 50 minutes in. I'm not going to be heavy-handed with you. You can read Hebrews 6. You have a choice to receive the rain and produce fruit. Or to receive the rain and produce thorns and thistles. But that second category gets burned with unquenchable fire. 
Now I'm standing here as a man that has thrown people out of this church, that has watched others fall away in this church, and has stood and watched God bring new faces in this church. I am committed to the idea that the sound of rushing rain is here for you. Eric Val, for you. Rob Miranda, for you. You need the rushing rain. You're not gonna make it without it, but neither is anybody else, and you can have it. Brandon, it's time for the second rain. Rick, Susan, we're going to minister together. The second rain is falling. We're not in our 40s and done. We've just, the second rain is coming. Lindsay began to hear the second rain. She came up to me today to thank God for the Hewitts in their life and said that he, she sees life coming from their house. Big Spence is getting rained on. Here comes the rain again. Look at that list. You need to refresh your salvation experience. That's what the rain's for. You need to transform the way your heart feels about a brother, about a sister, or about a ministry. That's what the rain is for. You need a renewal in your prayer life. Let him rain on you and it will re-wet your communication with him. You need a renewal in your drive, your fight to jump in the ocean. Let it rain on you and watch how that fuels something inside you. We're going to answer this question, is it raining with you? And we answer it by saying, here comes the rain again. Father, we give you this moment. We say, do what only you can do. Bring the rain, mighty one. <laughs>